Well, I'd like to thank uh, Lou Cortese and the St. Joseph Radio Network staff and all of you for coming today for the opportunity to speak about a rather exciting topic, but little known. It's called the mystery of co-redemption. Uh, I'd like to begin with a little story. Uh, a priest chaplain of a hospital was taking care of two men, one on the first floor and one on the second. The man on the first floor was very communicative and had received confession and anointing, so that made the priest very happy. But unfortunately, he was a big complainer. <laughs> right? He was always complaining about the nurses, the noise, the food, everything about the hospital. But then there was a man, man on the second floor uh, who was more seriously ill, but he didn't talk too much. As a matter of fact, he didn't want to receive the last rites, and the priest was quite discouraged about that. No matter how hard the priest tried, he didn't want to receive anointing and confession. Um, so one day, moved by the Holy Spirit, the priest came up with a kind of a deal that he made with the guy on the first floor, the complainer. <laughs> he told the fellow, listen, there's someone who needs a lot of grace in this hospital. He didn't say the man's name, who needed, needed a lot of grace, a lot of help. So can you do a favor for him? Why don't you not complain for three days and offer it for that person who needs grace in this hospital? And at first, the fellow on the first floor was kind of reluctant about it. He didn't want to do it because he was a natural complainer. <laughs> but he said, okay, Father, I won't complain. I'll do it. All right, well, three days went by, true story, and on the third night, <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning, the priest got a call from the hospital, the second floor, precisely the floor where the man who didn't want to go to confession was. And he got this urgent call saying, this man would like to go to confession and receive the last rites. Third night, right? So the priest rushed to the hospital and gave him the sacraments. And the man died a few hours later. Now, I never found out if the priest told the complainer on the first floor that he had done a miracle, because he really had done a miracle. But it's a, I thought it was a rather beautiful story to tell, a true story, because it's about co-redemption that that man, that complainer, quote, redeemed the guy on the second floor by offering his non-complaint for that guy. So um, why did I write this book? And here it is right here in case you haven't seen it. It's got a very nice cover, green cover. It says, How Christ Saved Souls Dash With Us, The Mystery of Co-Redemption. And the cover is of the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. Jesus is using his disciples and a little boy who had loaves and fishes to do this great miracle. And that's how co-redemption works. Jesus does all the stuff, all the action, and somehow he gets us involved in doing it. So I thought the cover was very significant. Right? And I'm very grateful to Scott Hahn for writing the nice forward. We'll talk about him a little bit later. 
But I wrote about this book to speak about this great truth, that Christ saves souls with us, and often in the most mysterious, even humorous ways. Um, and we are, all of us, priests and lay faithful, called to this challenging mission of co-redemption, of bringing hope and salvation to those around us. Now, as far as I know, this is the first book on co-redemption in English to be written. And there might be something in German or Spanish or French, but in English, I think this is the first one, even though the word exists, of course, like Mary co-redemptrix and co-redemption, but this is the first book to be written about it. Even though several 20th century popes and saints have talked about it or written about it, but we have to understand the term properly. Pope Francis, in two recent statements, actually warned against the false use of this word, the false use, the misuse of this word, co-redemption. There is only one redeemer of the human race, he says, and of course, that is Jesus Christ. There is no need for co-redeemers, and we can never be equal to him as if we were like gods or goddesses, right? And of course, the Pope, being the Pope, is right. <laughs> it's true. There's only one Redeemer, and that is Jesus Christ. But as I try to clarify in the first chapter, we are not co-redeemers like the co-pilot of an airplane <laughs> or the co-author of a book. That's not the idea of co-redemption. I think that's what the Pope is concerned about. But it's true from sacred scripture and from the magisterium of other popes and the writings of the great 20th century saints that Jesus Christ wants us to share in the action of souls and saving souls and in spreading his kingdom. And he wants to work in and through us in our relationship to those around us. And this is very clear from the gospel, like when he says to his apostles, go forth and teach all nations. And he himself is not going to personally go forth and teach all nations, but Peter and James and John and the holy women, they're going to do it. Go forth and teach all nations. So he's using them as co-redeemers. Or when he says, he who hears you, hears me. That's a beautiful sentence, isn't it? He who hears you. So even though I'm not here, when they speak, when you speak, people hear me. He who hears you, hears me. And I love this one. This is from Matthew. You are the light of the world, so let your light shine. And he wasn't just talking to his apostles then. He was talking to people who followed him. You are the light of the world. Let your light shine. So he who gives witness, um, another one is he who gives witness before men, I will give witness to him before my heavenly Father. So it's pretty clear that Jesus even though he is the Redeemer, as the Pope reminds us, the only Redeemer, yet he does share the action with us. And for that, we're very grateful. Although it's very hard sometimes <laughs> to be a co-Redeemer. Now we know his first followers, the early Christians, literally took him at his word. They really wanted to act like him in the middle of the world, spreading his truth and his charity in a world very similar to ours, very similar to ours, because really the, 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 the Roman Empire in its decline, if you study it carefully, historically, it's pretty similar to our world right now. 
um, there were many broken homes and abandoned children in the Roman Empire. Sometimes they would even leave children on the streets that they didn't want. And the early Christians would go and take those children into their homes. Lots of abandoned children. Lots of violence on the streets and the gladiatorial games. Sometimes I think like our violent video games or some of the violent stuff that we see on television or movies. The Romans went to the theaters to see the violence, but it was still the same thing. It was a very similar situation. There was a kind of mind control too, suppressing speech or beliefs against Caesar and his empire. A kind of a suppression of ideas, something similar to what we get today, kind of suppression of ideas against, quote, the, the leaders of society, whoever they are. There certainly was a lot of sexual immorality back then of all different kinds. I'm not going to get into all that, but lots of sexual immorality in those days. But worst of all, the early Christians had to fa face a kind of hopelessness and despair in people's lives. As a matter of fact, many people committed suicide in the Roman Empire. And so here are the early Christians who are told by Jesus, you are the light of the world, let your light shine, right? Go forth, teach all nations. Really, those first Christians with their faith and hope in Christ began to change things inside of that society, like the leaven in the dough. And that is why I wrote those earlier books that some of you have seen or read about the early Christians. The first one was Junia, right, and then Marcus and Grain of Wheat. I wrote, I wrote, wrote about that to show how they changed things radically from within. I think just as we are called, priests and laymen, to change things radically from within, like the leaven in the gospel. But how did they change things? How did the early Christians change things? Well, through their friendships with others, slaves with slaves, merchants with merchants, soldiers with soldiers, wives and mothers with other wives and mothers. It was so beautiful the way they changed things, but it was, from, it was through friendship and communicating Jesus Christ and his teaching. That's the way they changed the world. And some of them had heroic sufferings, like we remembered St. Lucy just recently, right? December 13th, St. Lucy, and how she suffered. Some of the early Christians, they simply amazed their pagan neighbors. They couldn't understand how can people have such courage and go through such things when it would be so easy just to put a little bit of incense into the statue uh, of Caesar and say that you worship Caesar. So easy to do that and not even mean it. You could save your life. Christians wouldn't even do that. They refused to do that. There's only one God, one Savior, and it is not Nero. <laughs> it is not uh, Caesar. It is Jesus Christ. They were also amazed, the pagans, how the early Christians got such charity, not only for themselves, but for non-Christians as well, right? See how they love one another, their neighbors would say. And I'd like to think that we're called to do the same thing in 2022. 
soon to be 2023, as far as my calendar remembers, anyhow. <laughs> so, in thinking about redemption and co-redemption, I think we should always remember that it's only through Jesus Christ, in union with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, that we can really become co-redeemers. We have to have that relationship with God first, and then he works through us. Jesus redeems through us in our words, in our actions, and in all the aspects which can become our own life. Yes, once again, thinking about co-redemption, we always remember that it's Jesus Christ in union with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit that we are redeemed. It's through them. Remember, Jesus Christ is the person who became one of us, but yet God the Father and God the Holy Spirit also redeem us. This is called an operation ad extra. It's something outside of the life of the Trinity. They all work together to redeem us, even though only one of the persons became one of us, Jesus Christ, whom we will remember at Christmas as a child. And not only did he redeem us, though, sometimes we think that Jesus redeemed us through his death and resurrection, but let's remember he also redeemed us in every aspect of his life. This is sometimes forgotten. Every aspect of his life is redemptive. Why? Because he's a divine person. And everything that he does has repercussions for all centuries, for all times. So the fact that he uh, was, for instance, an unborn child redeems all unborn child, children in some way. The fact that he was a, a toddler, that he had to learn how to walk, how to speak, how to obey his parents, gives hope to all children that they can be good children if they connect with Jesus. The fact that he wanted to grow up in a family, to have a father and a mother, he uplifts and redeems all homes and families. I mean, keep all these things in mind. This is a divine person doing this. And therefore, if we can somehow plug into him, we can also redeem the family, children, work. He worked for those 30 years in that little village of Nazareth. Ordinary job, making a living like other people of his time, other men of his time. Helpful for all people that have to work throughout centuries to come, men and women. He had ordinary work. Because he had many friends and relatives, he went to social events like weddings, like you do, and even funerals, all sorts of things. In other words, he was like one of us as the Second Vatican Council says, in everything except sin. And because he culminated his redemption of all of us when he died on the cross, forgiving our sins, and then he rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, giving hope and new life for the entire human race. That's what most people think when they think of redemption. Oh, that's crucifixion and resurrection. But really, he was redeeming us, too, when he was a little kid, when he was a worker, when he was helping his neighbors, doing ordinary things, he's redeeming us, too. And it's very important to keep in mind, 
And it's also the central me message of Opus Dei. The founder of Opus Dei liked to speak a lot about co-redemption. And he would always use examples like this from ordinary life. But there, these are the means that we know that he used to redeem us. And yet, the salvation of every human soul will always be a great mystery for us because it's a marvelous interplay between human desire, human will, and God's grace. And really, it's only in the next life that we will know for sure who has been redeemed. So we can't really say, like in a proud way, I'm a co-redeemer. No. Wait till heaven, and you will see if you were a co-redeemer or not. Uh, Jesus is the redeemer, but you wait till heaven to see if you're a co-redeemer. The, the, the story isn't over, right, yet. Um, it's only in the next life that we will really know. But we know for certain that God works through us that Jesus is always working with us and through us to bring his infinite love to the world. Why do we know this? Because he said it in the gospel. You are the light of the world. Go forth and teach all nations. He who hears you, hears me. That's a pretty direct connection between us and Jesus. But for sure, for sure, you've got to wait till heaven to see who's redeemed. But we have to try on this earth. We have to try on this earth. What is more, as I was mentioning to Paul in his question here, if we've been baptized, we know that we have become like him already, other Christs, Christ himself, really, or another Christ in the words of St. Paul. We have divine life within us, and we have become configured with Jesus Christ in baptism, in his role as king, priest, and prophet, and throughout our life, he will continue to work in us and through us in the way we order our lives, pray, and teach others by word and example. So here's, here's the point. You might ask, well, how, how can I specifically become a co-redeemer? <laughs> how can I do it? Well, again, it can only be through grace. You can't do it on your own. Christ has to work through you to do it. But here's things, here's things that will help you. Uh, first, I would pray a lot. <laughs> I would pray hard. I don't think you can be a co-redeemer unless you pray hard. Uh, pray every day for the grace to do God's will in everything, since this will make you most like Jesus himself. And then your words and actions will overflow with goodness and power since Christ himself is working in and through you. Why? Because you've prayed consistently every day to him, and he'll work through you. And the most powerful prayer that you can do each day is, of course, the Holy Mass, which is the reactualization of Calvary and the resurrection. The culmination of the redemption is at the Holy Mass. And by connecting your life with the Mass, you can convert your work, your family life, joys and sorrows of each day with the Redeemer himself. And he will give you that co-redemptive power, but it comes from the Mass. It comes from his sacrifice. 
In that way, you'll be able to offer all that you do that day for the glory of God. You will be able to enlighten people around you in what they need to hear. A lot of people are down. Many people in our country suffer from depression and anxieties and fears. A lot of people are afraid. Well, help those people. Where do you get the power to help those people? Through the Mass, through the Mass, through prayer. You can help many people really connect with God more and more, which is what co-redeemers do. You'll be able to sanctify the little things of each day. You'll be able to maybe smile a little more which people need and not complain like our friend in the hospital. We saw how the great good he did by not complaining <laughs> and he offered it up for someone he didn't even know. It was the guy on the second floor <laughs> of the hospital he was doing it for. He didn't know that. Maybe the priest told him afterwards, but maybe he didn't because you have to be very careful about who goes to confession and who, what you know. <laughs> but the priest was so grateful to that man for offering those three days of not complaining. So. Well, this is the way it works. It's, it's very mysterious. But if we don't complain, we can bring grace to the world, often in very unsuspected, beautiful ways. As a matter of fact, as co-redeemers, we are really bringing Christ's kingdom to the world. That's what you're doing. You're bringing his kingdom to the world. That was the model, by the way, of Pope Pius XI back in, in the 1920s. He's the pope that used most the expression co-redemption, Pope Pius XI back in the 1920s. As a matter of fact, the model of his papacy was Pax Christi in Regno Christi, the peace of Christ in the reign of Christ, in the kingdom of Christ. That's exactly what co-redemption is. It's we have our part of bringing Christ's peace in the world. He, of all the modern popes, spoke most about co-redemption. And by the way, he is the one, Pope Pius XI, who established the Feast of Christ the King that we celebrated not long ago in the church. That was established by Pope Pius XI. It's very connected with redemption and the spread of Christ's kingdom. So, in a word, uh, I'd like to challenge you. I'm not picking on you <laughs> here in the audience, but um, I'd like to challenge you and myself to be very magnanimous about your life. That's a beautiful word, magnanimous. It comes from two Latin words, magna anima. It means having a big soul or a big heart. A magnanimous person thinks big, right? So, let's think big. Uh, think like this. If we correspond to God's plans for us, we too can become redeemers, co-redeemers. Like St. Paul said, I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. That's Galatians 2.20, if you want to double check it. <laughs> Galatians 2.20, he says, I live now, not I, that if Paul had died, he had the experience, now it's Christ living in me. And because of that, he can be a co-redeemer because Christ is living within him. I live now, not I, but Christ lives in me. This is really the goal of all the members of the Catholic Church, isn't it, in the end? 
which is Christ's mystical body on earth. We are truly his eyes and tongue and hands and feet. And he's working in and through us all the time. That's what he's doing. Even more than his physical body, we can share in the thoughts and feelings and sufferings of Jesus. At times, we too are going to suffer greatly. We're going to go through big disappointments in our life, maybe serious illness, emotional distress, mental disorders, even torments. Ever think of uniting all those things you go through with Jesus? If you do, you receive the power from him to save souls. I mean, what, how can I put it? What did Jesus cry on the cross? Words that sound terrible, really. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I mean, here you have the Son of God saying that on the cross. Why have you abandoned me? Saying that to his Father. He's quoting, of course, from Psalm, Psalm 23, but it's more than just quoting from a psalm. Obviously, Christ is suffering tremendously in his human nature, in his heart and mind. He really felt abandoned and alone. And sometimes we can feel the same. We can feel abandoned and alone. Nobody cares about me. <laughs> I'm all alone. Uh, I'm just suffering, or people even hate me or reject me. We can have those same feelings that Jesus had. Uh, and yet, and here's the mystery of redemption, if we can somehow connect our deep anguish with Jesus' anguish, we bring true grace to the world. Or I should say, he's bringing the grace through us because we've connected our anguish and pain with his on the cross. And somehow redemption happens. True redemption happens. I remember St. Josemaria, founder of Opus Dei, used to say, uh, kiss the wounds of Jesus crucified. Can you imagine that? Take a crucifix and just kiss the wounds of Jesus crucified. And there you will find peace. There you will find real interior life if you kiss those wounds. I mean, there's something very deep about co-redemption. You really cannot bring grace unless you've walked the walk, and that includes the cross, like the early Christians did. But that's the power of it all. It's through that cross, but it's also through those little things of each day that Jesus does in the home, family, friends. We can also redeem through those things, see, just as he did. Now, I spoke about some very dramatic moments in Christ's life, like the anxiety, the pain, the sense of loneliness, suffering that we can all endure, but that's all part of redemption. The emotions are redeemed too, and the deepest feelings are redeemed. But this book mostly is about ordinary things. <laughs> although we have to talk about the extraordinary things. The book is about ordinary occurrences in life for where we can be co-redeemers. I've tried to describe many scenarios of daily life to focus on different ways that the faithful of the church, both priests and lay people, can really bring more truth 
and hope to society since each one of us is called to be another Christ in his or her environment, each one of us. In the home and family, I'm so privileged to be with some couples with very good families in front of me. Um, but the home and family, by having unity and affection for one another, beginning with the husband and wife, by raising the children with God at the center of the home, in prayer together, in helping and serving one another, which is the beauty of family life, in laughing and having fun together. I think that's part of redemption too, just kind of laughing and having fun together. It's okay, it's a good thing to do. It brings joy to, to the family. And yes, in the end, enjoying God together in heaven, because that's what all matrimony should lead to, that both of you enjoy God together in heaven. It's the goal of all the sacraments. In other words, family life, I think, given our country today, families, real families, man and woman and children, are the salvation of our country in so many ways. Truly, families can be co-redemptive in all the good they can do. So I encourage all of you to keep it up and get others to help as well. Inspire others also. Also, friendships and relationships with good example. Because if you really are a co-redeemer, that is, Jesus is working through you, you're going to feel compassion for people. Uh, you'll know how to comfort and console them. You'll know how to be a good listener. Part of it is just being a good listener. Even though you don't have an answer, just be a good listener to somebody's suffering. Um, and at the right time, maybe speaking about the faith or speaking about some ideal or challenge in life. Remember what Jesus said, he who gives witness to men of me, I will give witness to him before my heavenly Father. So anything, any good you can do for other people by witnessing Christ, by listening, you are redeeming somehow the world. Christ works through you. Definitely in your work, uh, through him, with him, in him, as we say in the Holy Mass, through him, in him, with him, with Christ, through him, in Christ, whether at home or outside, whatever kind, of, whatever kind of occupation you have, as long as you can offer it to God and it's done well, it can be, it can be redemptive, co-redemptive work with a good spirit of service. You can bring Jesus to the world just by that. All these, all these things making a special effort, or I should say particularly because we're in the Christmas season, anything you can do to help people in need. Uh, who have financial, emotional, mental, or spiritual troubles. Remember, you too are the Good Shepherd. Christ, the Good Shepherd, must work in you. And at times, we're, we're going to have to put people like the lost or hurt sheep on our shoulders to save him or her. This is one of the most powerful and direct ways of being a co-redeemer, someone who's really hurting and you bring him back or her back or you bring someone back to the church or you save a soul in purgatory by your prayer and sacrifice. 
I mean, be sure these are wonderful ways to be co-redeemers. And our Lord will love you for it more and more, for what you do for others. Um, finally, I want to get to the last chapter of the book, which I saved the best till last. The last chapter is Mary Co-Redemptrix. Right? Mary Co-Redemptrix. Pope Francis, in a 2019 homily, rightly states that Mary would not have wanted that title for herself. I think he's right on that one, too. But somehow, I like to think that her son would give it to her, <laughs> co-redemptrix, that Jesus wouldn't mind calling his mother co-redemptrix. I understand there are problems with it because people can get confused, especially non-Catholic Christians, as if Mary was as important as Jesus. But knowing Jesus, I think he would have called his mother co-redemptrix. But we have to be careful. But from what we can see in the gospel, she always acted in a simple and humble way as Jesus' mother. And later on, as one who serves, serves, yet was the mother of his disciples in the church. Because of all, of all the human persons that ever lived, she most closely associated herself with Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, in becoming his mother, the beautiful, immaculate daughter of God the Father, the virginal spouse of God the Holy Spirit. All that she said and did on earth and in heaven is co-redemptive in the most excellent way. All the things that she did in raising Jesus as a little boy with St. Joseph in that house of Nazareth. She enabled Jesus' first miracle at Cana, right? The wine, turning the water into wine, the beginning of his redemptive ministry on earth. Above all, by standing beneath the cross on Calvary, suffering so personally and deeply that really you can say a sword pierced her soul as Simeon had predicted 30 years earlier. And she continues to co-redeem. I mean, from heaven, I'm sure she's constantly interceding for us and winning graces for all of us each day, including the performance of miracles at her shrines and other places and just basic miracles. I think everybody could say here, she really did it. She produced this great miracle for me or she got me out of a very tough situation. That's the way she is. Um, and yes, it's true, and I'm, I have to agree with Pope Francis, of course. She doesn't, the title co-redemptrix is not in scripture. And maybe if you asked her, are you co-redemptrix? She would probably say, no, <laughs> only my son <laughs> is the redeemer. I'm not co-redemptrix. I'm not worthy to be co-redemptrix but we can certainly see that it's true <laughs> if you really understand the word co-redemptrix. Perhaps the same could be said of us. Uh, we are most co-redeemers when we think only of Jesus and the good that we can do for others with Jesus. 
No other title is really needed. We just have to be Jesus, Christ, in our daily life. So I better finish at this point. Uh, I hope you enjoy the book. Um, by the way, it has a foreword by, by Dr. Scott Hahn, and I am most grateful for his endorsement, especially in the way he describes how Christ shows his divine power when he works through us to redeem others. I mean, it doesn't take away from Christ's power to say we are co-redeemers. As a matter of fact, it shows Christ's power that we're co-redeemers. It shows how he works through us in some mysterious way. It shows his tremendous power and how he respects our freedom. Also, I really did appreciate that foreword, as I think uh, Nate just brought up, um, his biblical observation that God himself works with us and he quotes from scripture, this Greek, Greek word synergain. You see, I don't want to get too technical here, but ergain means to work in Greek. Monergain is what many Protestants, non-Catholic Christians think, that somehow uh, Jesus works alone. Monorgain. But scripture says, no, God works with us, synergain, in bringing hope to the world. So if you read the book, please check the foreword written by Dr. Hahn. It's very uh, illustrative, and particularly because he is such an expert in Scripture. I think it will show you even more clearly what co-redemption means in the Bible. So uh, any final questions before we end or comments? Uh, yes, Paul. Um, I guess in trying to co-redeem you know, and, and share faith with others, I often feel don't worthy to do, don't feel worthy to do that. Like, how is it that we can feel, or is it that we are worthy of being a co-redeemer? Okay, good question. The question is, how can we be worthy to be co-redeemers? Because that's such a big word, and uh, it's, it's such a big privilege. How, can, how are we worthy? The answer is, we aren't. <laughs> None of us are worthy, neither priests, nor lay people, nor nobody. But I would like to say, we'll talk about this a little bit later, that you're made worthy of being a co-redeemer because you are baptized. And I think many people listening now in the audience are baptized, you're baptized, you're, you are worthy because sanctifying grace entered your soul at that time. You became a son of God you actually became another Christ, even though you were just a little guy, perhaps, when you were <laughs> baptized. You were made worthy by his grace, but none of us is worthy to be a co-redeemer. This is all the grace of God working in us in daily life, which we'll see later. Okay, one question was by Rebecca. Um, how is like secular altruism, like somebody like Bill Gates, trying to do good in the world, how is that different from what you're describing? Good question. So the question is, secular altruism, how is that different, like a person like Bill Gates or somebody with a lot of money who contributes to a lot of good causes, millions of dollars, how is that different from, from co-redemption? Well, I would have to say, does all that money produce grace in people's souls? Does it really help? people to get to heaven or not. It might make life easier, like helping the poor, giving food to people. 
That's part of redeeming somebody, but the ultimate redemption is grace and love in a person's soul. So that's the difference, I would think, between secular altruism and co-redemption. Co-redemption has an element of grace and salvation to it, but altruism as such is good, but you can't guarantee real love there and salvation. That would be the big difference, I would think, between the two. Uh, you had a question here, Paul? Yeah. What advice would you have for someone who feels that their efforts at co-redemption or evangelization or whatever are not bearing fruit or falling on unfertile soil, as they say? Yes. Question here is, uh, how can you be how can you be sure that your efforts at co-redemption are really fruitful? Because oftentimes it seems like they are not fruitful. They are ineffective. And I, I would simply say, go back to Calvary once again. It certainly seemed in those moments when Jesus was on the cross that everything was fruitless. That we weren't getting anywhere. Uh, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? The, this sort of scenario. And yet, that was precisely when he was redeeming the whole world truly in that pain and suffering. So I would almost say it's good that you feel that way, that your efforts are fruitless, because then you have to rely more on God. You can't rely on yourself. I think it's God's way of purifying your effort that it be of pure faith and not just your accomplishment, I did this. No. The fact that it's ineffective means only he's effective and I'm just an instrument. Just keep in mind the crucifixion. Jesus does it in the end. Good question, though. I've got a question, Father. Question. Um, during the riots of 2020, the summer of love, the, the, the BLM and Antifa oh, riots, oh, yes, sir. Um, some people were saying, why isn't the clergy out there? And I asked my priest, and he said, that's your job to redeem the world. It's my job to redeem the faithful. Could you explain that? Um, yeah. How we are sent and how, what is our, um, what is our responsibility? And do we have to, do we have to bring people to mass in order to complete that responsibility? Wow. Do they have to be baptized before we're done? Hmm. Well, Brad's question uh, is about going back to the riots. Uh, I think that was a couple summers ago, right, the BLM uh, riots. And he talked with a priest, friend of his, and he asked why weren't there any priests out there on the streets with the rioting or protesting the treatment of, it was Mr. Floyd, right? I think it was there. Um, and the priest said, well, that's your job as a layman to be out there. Um, although I can think of priests who were out there in the civil rights years of the 1960s. They were there marching with people for civil rights for the African-American people, which is interesting. But yes, the, I, I would agree with the priest. It's the layman's job mostly to solve these social issues. The priests are su su simply supposed to give the principles, the, uh, the elements, uh, doctrinal elements, and the layman should implement them and redeem with those principles, using that word co-redemption. So in that sense, yes, the layman is more important than the priest. 
and he can do far more than the priest can. But the priests have to pray and maybe occasionally act, get out there himself if it's really serious, as in the civil rights issues. Uh, and, and I would say too, laymen should mention about the Holy Mass. Yes, I think it's really great if someone, if you can bring somebody back to the church or back to confession or to the Mass, I would be most happy to call you a co-redeemer because <laughs> you brought somebody back to the church. So, and that's something that only laymen can do. Priests are limited by the collar, <laughs> or just limited by our condition. But you guys and girls, you can do a lot. So, well, thank you for listening very much. Okay.